All right. If you didn't grab a sheet, there, I think there were enough going on. Everybody get one. There's, we can make more copies if we need to. We are continuing our study of the book of Galatians. So go ahead and grab your Bible. Find Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to dive into what I think is one of, not probably not the most interesting. There's some really good stuff coming forward. But I do think this is one of the more interesting sections of the book. And there's an interesting analogy. And we get to think through some questions that actually come up. I know sometimes, because I'm that nerdy guy who likes to get into theology that nobody else cares about. I understand that. Maybe two of you do. But um, this one is one of those that I get questions about regularly. And so I think this will be fruitful for you because it won't just be the answer, it'll be the explanation. Does that make sense what the difference is? It's going to come up to things like, can, can we get tattoos? You know, there's debate in the Christian church about whether or not in the New Testament setting you can do that. There's certain laws in the Old Testament that a lot of churches don't follow today. So we're going to think through the theology based on what the Apostle Paul here is arguing with things like that. So let's dive in. Let's do a quick review before we fill in any of those blanks. Just think about the context of the book of Galatians. Let's start with the basics. Who wrote it? Who? This is the Apostle Paul. What's his background? It's of note in this book in particular. But not just Jewish. He's a Pharisee, yes. He, he's a Pharisee, he says, of the Pharisees. He's super Pharisee. All right, then who's he writing to? to the churches, and what is their particular situation? Judaizers, exactly. Now, that's our term. The term is technically not in the Bible. We use this term to define a group of people who came to the church. Really, we should say churches. It's a region. The churches of this area and started teaching what Paul calls a different gospel. Not that there is another. He's saying this is... The gospel itself has been distorted. So what's the main thing they're trying to get everyone to do? These Gentile converts is get them to do what? Follow the Mosaic Law. And the particular aspect of the Mosaic Law they're supposed to do is which one? Circumcision. Why would circumcision... I have no idea how to spell that. Let's just go with it. The circum part. Um, why would that one be such a big deal? Because there's plenty they could pick. Why pick circumcision? It's the covenant, in a way, it's the entry point. This is, you're not part of the children of Israel if you're not through the circumcision. This is their, what we do sometimes in the, the New Testament era, say, is baptism. And there is a relationship there, but we'll, we'll be clear about what that means. So the Judaizers came in and said, unless you do this, you follow the law, you get circumcised, you quit eating the meat, don't eat the pork, don't eat the bacon, don't eat anything sacrificed to an idol, which meant meat in the Greco-Roman world. So adopt Judaism as a culture, then you can be God's people. And so the question that was really at hand was this idea of justification. Remember that word? Important word. What's that word mean? Literally, it's counted righteous. And that is correct, but the Apostle Paul here is using it in a slightly more precise sort of way. So you may remember, um, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but for those who 
weren't here for that. You may recall in the Old Testament, there were basically two types of people. Two types of people. What were those two types of people? You would think it's Jews and Gentiles, and it should be, but it was slightly more precise than that. Well, the Jews were the the righteous, and then the Gentiles were the, the sinners. Or often in the Old Testament, instead of sinners, we would use the word the wicked. You know, read through the Psalms, read through the Proverbs, and God treats the righteous one way, and he treats the wicked another way. And so, in the Jewish mindset, those were the same. You had the Jews who were the righteous, and the Gentiles who were the wicked, but you ask most Jews, they would know the difference. We, we say the same thing in our culture, just because somebody goes to church <laughs> doesn't mean they're really one of us. The Jews would have said the same thing. So you still had Jews who were among the wicked. And so the righteous Jews in their mindset were the ones who did what? They followed the law. So for the Apostle Paul, his circle's not the whole people of Israel. It's probably only the Pharisees and the legitimate ones within that. That's God's people. What makes you God's people? What classifies you as righteous? Well, it's your works of the law. Do you see how we're using the word justification? It still has to do with righteousness. Are you right or are you wrong? But in this case, it kind of has to do with the category you belong in. Do you belong in the category of righteous because you've done good works? Or do you belong in the category of righteous because of this other thing that Paul was preaching? What's the other thing? It happens because of grace, but what the part we play is called what? Faith. Justification by faith. So what sorts the categories then? Which one do you go in is based on whether or not you have faith. But not faith in general. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus. Specifically in Jesus. All right, so that catches us up to chapter 3. So let's just remind ourselves what Paul has argued so far. So he's, he's, we're kind of doing it from a high level. He's done it in a slightly different way. He's saying there's only one gospel. He spends the first chapter saying he got this gospel directly from Jesus, but also the apostles got it directly from Jesus. So at some point they come together and they compare the two gospels, and what did they discover? It's the same. In both cases, what justifies you? What sorts you into the categories? Faith, not works. Faith in Jesus is what sorts the categories. And so he moves on from there to say that there was a specific scenario where in Antioch, all these Jews and Gentiles are now eating at the same table. Now, usually in the church, when we talk about the table and sharing table fellowship, we're really referencing a specific thing the church does. You know what that is? It's the Lord's Supper, communion, exactly. And so, who's eating communion at the same table at the church in Antioch? Everyone who has faith, Jew and Gentile alike. But then the circumcision party comes, the ones who believed the Jews only were the righteous, shows up in Antioch and starts pressuring Peter and Barnabas. No, no, we've got to keep that separate. The Jewish Christians are the real Christians. The Gentile Christians are on their way to being Christian. They're not really Christian yet until they adopt our lifestyle. 
And then does that convince Peter? Is Peter tempted by that? Unfortunately, yeah. He, he gets astray. And Paul says it even got so bad that who else went astray as well? Barnabas. You can just feel that even Barnabas followed their hypocrisy. Then he has that, he called them out to their face of what you're doing is not in line with the gospel. Then he goes, we all know that none of us Jews are righteous from the law. We know this. That's why Jesus came. If, if we had the law and that was good enough, there was no reason for him to come and you should just still be Jewish. But you're not Jewish. You're Christian Jewish. And you're Christian Jewish because Jewish wasn't enough. So it doesn't make any sense to go to Jesus and then go back and say, well, no, but, but we still need to be this. Because by being Christian, you were already saying that wasn't good enough. That's what Paul's arguing. And he goes through the whole, I'm crucified with Christ. Because if you end up getting sorted based on faith into the categories of righteous and wicked, so if you have faith, you're sorted to this category, some days do you still look like you belong in the sinner's category? And from a Jew-Gentile perspective, the Gentiles, they're eating the bacon. They always look like they're in this category. But that's not what the sort is based on. The sort's based on righteousness. And so what, from a visual standpoint, can I look at people now and tell which category they're in? Well, there's one thing I can see, or at least if I look hard enough and can see well enough, it's not their wickedness or their righteousness. It's are they crucified in Christ? You see the difference? I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's just a change of lordship. The fact that they repented means they follow Jesus now. You should better look at them and see, hey, they, they follow Jesus. So I can see their faith in that they follow Jesus. Not whether or not they're wicked or righteous, because truth be told, we're, we're all really in this category, which will be what we get into tonight. So that's what Paul's done so far. That gets us up to chapter 3. And then in chapter 3, he goes back and just reminds them. Oh, you foolish Galatians, if you remember. He says, uh, when you first received the Spirit, how exactly was it that you got saved? Did you go get circumcised? Did you go become righteous? Did you follow the law? Or did you just hear the gospel message, believe it, and get filled with the Holy Spirit? Of course, what's the answer? B. <laughs> you know, you heard the gospel. You believed. And then he asked that kind of nonsensical question, if that's how you got saved, are now you going to use your fleshly willpower to stay saved? No, that doesn't make any sense. When would it ever stop being by faith? Well, I got sorted by faith originally, but now that I'm over there, I got to use a different strategy for my sort. That doesn't make sense. Faith sorts, righteous or unrighteous. And then he uses this example of Abraham. So now we're to the outline. Review the faith of Abraham. I know everybody's been trying to figure out the blank. I've heard some good answers. The one I was going for is God promised blessing to Abraham. Some people said a child, children, a nation, offspring. Those are not wrong answers, but the correct CeeLo answer is uh, blessing. So God promised to bless Abraham. This, of course, comes from Genesis. We, Paul's combining what happens in Acts. Genesis 12 with Genesis 15. One is the case, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. The next is Abraham specifically, I'm going to give you a son. And in both of these cases, what is Abraham's response to God's promise? Belief. He believes. Abraham believed God. And then it says God counted him 
sorted him out into this category. Now, was God saying, well, Abraham's a righteous man. Everything he says is good. No, read Abraham's life. This is, this is not true. Even his level of faith is a little in question at times. There's some there. We like that New Testament word. He's got mustard seed, um, but he got sorted by this, not by whether or not he actually did works of righteousness. So God says, all right, Abraham's one of my righteous people. So in this sense, what we said last week, being justified is similar to being sanctified. Sanctified specifically means what? Do you remember? Just to set apart, to make something holy. And you're being set apart as God's just people. All right, now... We'll have to make sense of why that's possible. So Jesus takes the curse of the law and makes believers children of Abraham by faith. And that's what the paragraph leading into what we're talking about tonight says. So, so that catches us up to where we are in Galatians now. So the way you and I get sorted into the righteous as we put faith in Jesus, and we can do this because Jesus took the court curse of the law, which of course is his crucifixion, his death on the cross. Our sinfulness can be eradicated through faith in Christ, and now we are sorted with the righteous. That's what we mean when we say we are justified. Everybody on the same page, or at least in the same, playing the same game, we, we can get better batting average from here. All right, so let's dive in. So now we're ready. That only took 25 minutes, so... 15. So we're in chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So maybe in more modern terms, we'd say, if, if I make a will and testament, uh, you can't change it. Right? My will and testament stands. So that's, that's essentially what he's saying. Here's how he's going to make that work. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Made to Abraham and to his offspring. So who's the offspring? Well, it's going to be Jesus. Who would we think the offspring was? Isaac. And then Jacob. And then the 12 sons. And then all the nation of Israel. But Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. That's not what's happening. Instead, it says, and the offspring, referring to many, but... Let's see, I left verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural. Instead, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So he's comparing the covenant Jesus made with the promise made to Abraham. It's going to be very important. So when was Jesus promised to Abraham? Just in saying, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We were told that earlier in chapter 3. It said he beforehand preached the gospel to Abraham back in chapter, um, verse 8. So let's keep going. This is, what it mean, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So let's talk about the two covenants that are being compared here. Which two covenants is um, Paul talking about in this particular passage? Abrahamic and 
mosaic. So you can use those words, makes you sound, you know, real scholarly. But you just add ick to the end of their name and you're good. All right, so on the one hand, we've got Abraham. And then later, we have Moses. How, how much later? 430 years. So which one came first? There's the covenant with Abraham. And then later, and we'll do this with Moses. He's going to hold this tablet. You got the covenant with Moses. All right, and I'll, and I'll draw that out like that. Y'all will remember what that is in a second. All right, so we had a promise made to Abraham. The Apostle Paul saying, this promise was just a promise. And what did Abraham do? He just believed it. That's all. He did get circumcised later. That's not part of Paul's point right now. Right now, he just believed this promise. This is 430 years later. Paul's saying, this covenant does not break this covenant. That's his logic. Because this one's older. So God didn't change his mind. He didn't go, you know what, that's not working out. Let's try something else. That's not the plan. In Paul's mind, God is sovereign. God doesn't make mistakes. And there's a linear progression of his plan. It's not going to change. It's not going to deviate from plan A. So let's fill in some of these blanks. So the Abrahamic covenant, God promises blessings. Now we're just not being specific here, but blessings would include Isaac being born, the land, um, the nation, the kings would come, lots of specific things. We're just going to say blessings in general. And then Abraham receives those blessings simply by faith. That's all he does. He believes. The Mosaic covenant, however, is a little different. So I drew the little tablets there to reference what part of the Mosaic covenant. This is the Ten Commandments. This is the law. Now, we're told in the law, and we don't have time to study the entire law tonight to make this point, but in the law, there is a clear system of blessing and cursing. And if you want blessing, what do you need to do to have blessing? You need to obey. And Moses sets it up like this. I've set before you today life and death. Choose life. Obey the Lord, and he will bless you. Disobey the Lord, and he will curse you. Well, we fast forward in history. Um, the main, the primary way they disobeyed the Lord, the one he cared the most about, was idolatry. People fall into idolatry, and what does God do with his nation? He curses it, punishes it. He sends them into exile because of it. So God promises blessing again in the Mosaic Covenant, but Israel receives, so instead of by faith, they receive the blessing by works. You follow that? They receive this blessing by works. Next, the Abrahamic covenant is first. This is what Paul is trying to argue. The Abrahamic covenant comes chronologically first. The Mosaic covenant cannot, therefore, override the promise to Abraham. So no matter what God's people do in the Mosaic Covenant, question? That is not. Go for it. Yeah. I would just say Paul is quoting that number and being no more precise than that. 
correct. Yeah, he's not being that precise, which is which is often the case when when we deal with these Old Testament quotations. He's taking that literal number and just throwing that out there. So, all right. Um, which one we do last? Did we do the last blank in the two covenants? So Jesus, that's possessive. The Jesus New Testament, which is saying his new covenant, is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. You see that? Because we would run into a problem with Paul's argument. Why is Paul saying the Abrahamic covenant trumps the Mosaic covenant? Well, that, that's not what he's saying in this paragraph. He's just saying because it's older. But what's Paul arguing with the Judaizers? They don't have to get circumcised in this covenant. But they're hanging out over here. We took Paul's logic. Wouldn't his argument here disprove his argument of, about the law? All right, that's where he's going. And this is why I draw the chart this way. So to back up to last week, we said we use these different covenants in the Bible, but really there's two. There's a covenant of works, and there's a covenant of grace. Which one was Moses saved by? Grace. And that's what this is. The covenant of grace in its true form is the new covenant, the New Testament. But it existed here in the Old Testament in some specific ways. Abraham is the clearest beginning of this covenant. Therefore, Jesus, when he shows up, is the fulfillment of the promises made here. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is Paul's argument. He's saying that the new covenant is older than the Mosaic covenant. You hear how he's making the argument? Because... It's just the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which does precede temporally the Mosaic covenant. So Jesus' New Testament is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. So this is where you get to a very serious question. If God was saving people back here at Abraham through the New Covenant, through faith, now they didn't know about the blood of Jesus but that's still the thing that was saving them, according to the Apostle Paul. This faith in Jesus was still what was saving people all the way back here. Doesn't that make you wonder, why would he send the law at all? If this was good enough to get them saved, well, why bother with this piece if we're only going to do away with it once we get here? Valid question? Which is exactly what Paul asks next. So verse 21, or sorry, verse uh, 19. I'm getting old enough, I have to raise this thing and put it closer to my face. The days are coming. That's what we're doing, sorry. <laughs> the sad thing is, is this is a type of large print because it's a podium Bible. And it's larger because it's supposed to be able to stand at the podium and me still be able to see it. 
I'll just blame it on my contacts as long as they do that. All right, here we go. Verse, uh, what did we say, 19? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Do you feel the temporary nature of the law? It was added until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and what is put in place through angels by an intermediary. So in first century Jewish thought, the Torah was believed to be delivered by angels. That was their lingo. You kind of get a sense of that in the Old Testament. It doesn't always feel that way, but that's how they read that. So he's saying that came through angels, in other words, through an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And he's just saying that the New Testament here does not come through an intermediary. It comes through who? God, but God in the form of Jesus. So that's not two. That's only one, because that's God. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So it almost sounds like Paul's saying, we've got this bracket here of not so good. And it was nice and grace-filled back here. Then the law comes, and it's like, it's not so good. And then we get to the new covenant, and it's like, okay, good. It's good again. So what was God doing is essentially the question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Of course, what's his answer? No, not at all. The law is not bad. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So that, that's true in that part, that it can't grant you life. Everyone saved from Moses to Jesus is saved by which covenant? The covenant of grace. That's still true. The currency of salvation is still faith. So Paul argued earlier in chapter 3, the righteous live by faith. But we still haven't answered that question. Why, why give the law? Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, so he gives one of the reasons for the law there. I'm going to give you more than that because there's others in the Bible. And he implies one of them here, but I'm going to give a bigger picture. So let's do this. So under why the law, still in the first one. So the law provides a point of reference for the character of man, both negatively and positively. I should have reversed those. Both negatively and positively. Let's do positively first. So positively, here's what I mean by that. God's law demonstrates the character of we should strive to live for. Well, think about the Sermon on the Mount. When I do the Sermon on the Mount, this is always the main theme. Jesus says in 519, do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he gives us examples of what that fulfilling looks like. You may remember what they are. The first one he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be liable to the, to the court, to judgment. But I say to you, what? Don't hate. Don't even hate your brother. Don't call him a fool. Don't call him, in the Greek, a moron. You know what that is. So, you know, don't even have that attitude towards your brother. Now, what's Jesus doing with the law there? Is he changing it? No. What's he, what's he doing? Yeah. 
all of those are pretty good. Here's how I'm going to, he's redirecting it to the real problem. Why do they murder? They're in anger. Character problem. Now, Jesus didn't get angry at people and murder hit them while he was here in the flesh. That's not what he was doing. He had a perfect character. In all of those scenarios in the Sermon on the Mount, the law was designed to show them how they ought to behave. Y'all remember the analogy with Paxson throwing the train back at Blaze? He probably didn't even remember doing that anymore. Um, I'll give you the short version of that. I walked in the room, Paxson stolen the toy from Blaze, and I yelled at him. I said, you give that toy back to your brother right now, and he threw the toy back. Y'all remember the story? Hit him in the face. He probably, you remember that at all, Pax? Nope, nope. He's my good boy now. But uh, I have to be careful now telling the story, because that's not a fresh story. But uh, I, then I posed the question, did he, did Pax obey me? When I told him to give the toy back, and he threw it back, was that obedience? Only if you're a Pharisee. Only if you're a Pharisee. All right, that's not the heart of that commandment. What's the heart of that commandment? Lovingly give it back. I didn't say all of those words. They could be implied in a lot of aspects of the commandment. I didn't say them, though. The Pharisees were concerned about what it said. Jesus was saying, no, what matters is what it means. How does it apply to the heart? Repentance, change, transformation, character. So think about it. When we summarize the Old Testament law, we don't summarize it in works that we would disagree with. What are the two summary commandments of the Old Testament law? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, are we still supposed to love God and love neighbor? So I guess we still follow the law then, right? Well, in that regard, we do. But that's what the law was there for, to show you what love looked like. So the law was good. The law had a very good purpose. The law showed them during this time with Moses, it showed them how to live in a way that was righteous, that was good, that modeled the character of God himself. But the law had a negative effect. God's law painfully points out how far off the mark we really are. If you think about it, number two, number one and number two commandments, most important, love God with everything you have. How about you do that? A little less than stellar? And then love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you love yourself? We do. You know, even those of you who say you don't, you do. You do. The way it means it anyway. Um, do you love your neighbor that well? No, and those, that's just broad examples. We can go through a lot of specific examples. We know we're sinners, and one of the purposes of the law is to point that out. So the law promises curse for disobedience. And so when we read that law, we see the curse, we recognize that, in a sense, there's no hope for us. No one can truly be justified by the law. Do you see how the law has a positive and negative role? In one way, it shows us how we should be living. It's good, it's wonderful, it's positive. But the other same time, we see that law and we recognize we're not doing that. And God promises cursing. So if you remember in Nehemiah 8 where they have that, they come together and they read the law after the destruction of Jerusalem. They come back, they rebuild, they read the law. And how do the people respond when they heard the law being read? Do you remember? They weep and cry because they realize they hadn't been doing any of that. And now they realize that the book of the law ends with blessings and cursings. You, know, you don't want to read about all these things you were supposed to be doing and then get to the curses. You realize 
whoop, we're going back into exile. There's no hope here. That's how we would feel. And Paul is saying that's what the Scriptures do. Imprison everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So the law rules out being categorized off by works. You can only be designated as righteous now by faith. So the law was a tutor, both for instruction positively and discipline negatively for God's Old Testament saints. So verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you've been categorized by whether or not you're Christ or not. Verse 28, so there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, Male or female, none of that determines which category you are in. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So were we still under the tutor? i got two different answers to this. In one sense, he says we were only under the guardian until faith came. So there's a sense in which we're not under the tutor. But is the law still good? Should we still read the law? Should we obey the law? Okay. So where does this put Paul in his argument? He's trying, his whole point is for him to say, you don't have to get circumcised. There are parts of the law you don't have to keep. That's Paul's point. So how has he made his point? So far, because he's in one sense said, well, the law is this parenthetical tutor that we don't need, but at the same time, the law is good, and it's useful, and it matters, and we have to follow it. He's even going to tell us later on in Galatians to fulfill the law. That's going to come in chapter 6, or the end of chapter 5. So what is it? How has he contributed to his argument? That's how we're going to wrap up. So what is the law to us if we are in Christ. So just to re-say what we already said, the law was, past tense, a guardian until Christ came. That's true. We don't have to do that part. We're not under a guardian anymore. We have Christ directly. However, the law still instructs us in the character of Christ. And we've already said this. We all know that we should still love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we should still love our neighbor as ourself. And then the other purpose of the law is also still true. The law still points out how far we have to go. I mean, if you just, all you did was take the Ten Commandments and say, as long as you do these perfectly, you can go to heaven. Anybody perfectly keep the Ten Commandments? Well, I never murdered anybody. (laughs) Only nine of them. (laughs) Okay. It's the first three that are the hardest, anyway. It's our honoring of the Lord alone. We are idol makers. So both the instructing and the pointing out sin are still parts of the law that are effective today. 
However, this is the one that's important for our purposes, the law does not designate us as God's people. The law does not designate us as God's people. Okay, so there's a lot of law in the Old Testament. Anybody know the number of them? 613. That is at least the Jewish reckoning. I have never done that math. Probably never will. I'm just going to take the 613 for, for, you know, I'll just take their word for it. So let's say there's 613. So, you know, we think of the 10. We, we probably, at least collectively, could name all 10. Collectively, maybe even in order. I don't know, but we, we could probably get all of those. But there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. Anybody made it through all of the Torah? Read every, every verse in the Torah? Now, there's some sighing in there because a lot of times we do not make it through the Torah. Why is that? It's Leviticus. How many people is it Leviticus? You can stomach numbers. I mean, uh, Genesis, Exodus. You can get through it because the second half of Exodus is hard. You get into the dimensions of the tabernacle. But you, you get through that. But then you start the book of Leviticus. And there is no narrative whatsoever. It is all law. And what kind of law is it? How the sacrifice. Well, it's really important for you to know how to do a burnt offering, isn't it? Like, well, why am I even reading this, right? We recognize there's parts of that law that speak in a way that don't matter anymore. But there's parts of that law that clearly speak in a way that do. Now, historically, theologians have tried to categorize the law into three categories. Now, technically, it doesn't do this itself, but we, we can get a sense for this. One, they'll say there's ceremonial law. So this is your sacrificial system. How much of a sacrificial system do you still need to practice today? Zero. You don't need to offer an atonement sacrifice. You don't have to do any of this. What happened to the, the veil in the temple when Jesus was crucified? It's torn. The way has been made. You read the book of, of Hebrews. Hebrews is all about why would you ever go back to the Mosaic law if you had Jesus? And it's 13 chapters of how dumb that is. But you would never do that after having a perfect, once-for-all, all-time period sacrifice. You'd never go back to daily sacrifice. You wouldn't go back. We know we don't have to do that law. There's also laws that are considered civil. So, you know what civil law is about? This is, think of government, think of uh, public policy. Uh, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament that we would not, necessarily follow today, because many of them involve stoning. You know what stoning is, right? If you have this picture of throwing stones at someone, that's not stoning. Stoning is where they're standing below you, and you have a boulder, and you throw it down with some violent force, right? Not our culture, right? And from the New Testament forward, Paul explicitly says that power of the sword, capital punishment, belongs to who? government. God has given it to the government, not to the church. So really the ceremonial law is by default obviously no longer valid. We don't have to do it. That's instructive for us. We can learn about holiness. We can learn about God and what Jesus did through it. 
the civil law, we don't live in Old Testament Israel. We're exiles. Our nation is the kingdom of heaven, and it's kind of here, but it's not truly here. It's not fully here. That's future, so we don't have that civil law yet. In fact, the civil part of that law won't really be as necessary once it's finalized, because how much sin will there be in that kingdom? None. So there'll be no laws concerning how to deal with sin. So it'll be very different. Well, that leaves what's, what's the rest of the law is going to fall in what category? You know what this one's called? Moral. Very good. And what are those laws about? This is how to be Christ-like. That's what that's about. In the Old Testament, you could see the Jews by these things alone. They weren't necessarily always good at this one. But you could tell they were Jews because of what they didn't eat, because of how they dressed, because of what they didn't do, because of what their weekend looked like. You could judge the Jews by what they planted in their fields, what livestock they were willing to herd. You could tell they were Jews. You could designate them as God's people by looking at that. But in the New Testament, Paul's saying, what designates them as God's people? Faith. So we've X'd this out. Now we designate by faith. But that moral law, nothing's changed. We still got to obey those Ten Commandments. We still have to love our neighbor as ourselves. We still have to love God above all. That law is eternal, unchanging. It's only pieces of the law that no longer apply. So the simple answer of there's an Old Testament law that says I can't do this. Well, is it ceremonial, civil, or moral? Well, does it show you how to be Christ-like? Or in other words, does it show you how to be loving? Then you still need to do it doesn't, maybe not. Circumcision, ceremonial. Question. No. <laughs> Here's how I would say this. I actually thought about wording it that way, but I didn't think anybody would care. So thanks for proving me wrong. Uh, <laughs> technically, all the law is moral. It's the parts that are also ceremonial and civil we don't have to do. Does that make sense? All of God's law is moral in a certain sense. But not all of God's law is civil and ceremonial. And the parts of it that were no longer active. Right. Well, there's a there's a moral aspect of don't steal the sheep. There's a civil aspect of what recompense looks like. So the law doesn't divide itself into these categories. This is us, as Christians, looking back, clearly seeing we're supposed to obey the law, and clearly seeing there's parts of it we're not. And this is, this is how we do that. It's how we look back at it. Because Paul's going to tell us later to fulfill the law after he spent a whole book arguing that we're no longer under these parts. So he, he's still saying we're under it in a certain way. So the law does not designate us as God's people anymore. So laws of designation, the 
which I would say are ceremonial and civil, are no longer binding on the church. And praise his name, we can eat the bacon. We can eat the bacon. All right, Baconator, that's right. Okay, any questions on that? I don't think there's anything moral about it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I 100% agree, yes. Yes. And I would say that's still true. You don't need to tattoo an idol on your arm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And honestly, a lot of these things come down to what is wise and prudent, not necessarily what is lawful. Because Paul, in doing that whole thing in 1 Corinthians, all things may be lawful, not all things are profitable. So, I mean, I'm not going to go to get a tattoo. I don't think it's going to help my ministry. But I don't think you're going to hell because you have one. Yes, yes, yes. There's very much a prudence and wisdom issue going on there. And a lot of times when we're asking what can we do, the truth is we're asking the wrong question anyway. And so what should we do to further the kingdom is a better question to ask in all scenarios. So, all right. Fun topic, though. And it's going to get better. It's going to get, oh, it's so much better. It's only the intro of the fun stuff. So, all right, let's uh, pray and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity we've had to study your word. Pray that it would be fruitful for our lives as we continue into the, the meat of Galatians. Help us to think um, biblically. We want to believe what is true, believe what is right. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the word so that we could do that and live faithfully and be crucified with Christ so that we could say it's no longer us who live. The Christ who lives in us. Now we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.